Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 20, 1987's The Kindred, with abortion monsters, a poor man's Craig Wasson, and the best hairpiece for Rod Steiger in the history of cinema. Jacob? Yes. What are you talking about shrimp for? Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? I'm good. Good. And we are, I think it's safe to say, uh, indulging in a bit of one for us with this episode because we are going to do 1987's The Kindred pretty much for the sole reason that Synapse finally put it out on Blu-ray and uh, because Martin loves the shit out of uh, The Dorm That Drip Blood. It was a kind of formative slasher for you, let's say. And so it just kind of seemed like a great excuse to combine the two uh, movies into one and really explore the filmography of the two directors who made it. Um, you got Jeffrey Obrow and Stephen Carpenter, who are kind of a weird creative partnership uh, from the early 80s. And they made a handful of movies through the 80s together and then in the 90s kind of split off and started doing their own stuff. But like, Martin, let's start here because it's the most logical point since it's their first movie together. Why do you like The Dorm That Drip Blood so much? You know, um, Dorm That Drip Blood began for me with seeing this, like with every horror movie, seeing the the cover at the video store. Sure. And I remember I wasn't allowed to rent it. It was, I remember it was, I had the poster now. It was that silvery gray background with the this awesome like 1950s looking like like duke era gothic dorm this creepy looking um killer in kind of this like like almost like painterly style with a knife coming down and this girl who's this big butt like walking toward the dorm and it just like is everything and i think even at that age i liked campus slashers and butts and butts and i still like butts a lot and and i like campus slashers to this day <laughs> Two things haven't changed. You put a butt in a campus slasher, it's like Martin's heaven. I mean, it's, that's done. It's like Batman and Buffalo Wings. And <laughs> I, I remember when I finally saw it, I really ended up liking it. I love the the setup of the, the co-op over the holiday of these people like cleaning out. Um, actually, in the movie, it's actually being shut down. Um, they're supposed to sell right. everything off. And as we learned, listening to the director's commentary, this is actually where the filmmakers lived. Um, yeah, at, because at the they, they were UCLA students at the time and actually stayed over a Christmas break pretty much like the protagonists in the movie and just shot in the dormitory where they were living or like housing complex. Because it 
looks like an apartment building almost like everything from the great poster that you just described, not in the movie. No, at all. all. And it's, it is, I mean, it's the co-op in the film and it's a co-op in real life. Right. Where it was, I guess a place where they described, I think you would almost like, you could also work there and like do like a work study kind of thing, like taking care of the place. Um, But I, I love the setup and, and over the years I've really just grown to like the characters. I think something that I like about it too that I now like even more and having listened to the commentary for the first time uh, in preparation for the podcast is how kind of do it yourself. Um, this, this was like, they were, it became, I believe Stephen Carpenter's thesis film. Um, but when they began it, it was just like, Hey, they had seen Halloween and they'd seen uh, Friday the 13th. And like every single slasher knockoff from the early eighties from like basically 81, this is 82, um, was, Hey, we saw this. Why don't we fucking do that? We got a location. And I always kind of liked that mentality. And now I can hear them talk about it was why not? Um, yeah. Cause they even used like campus equipment and stuff to shoot it. They used the, the 16 millimeter. You said the same camera that you worked with. Yeah. It's a, it's an eclair. Um, and we were watching boogie nights last night. It's, right. it was kind of a, a war, a war horse of that era and any student um, film department in the, um, from the sixties or I guess late sixties on, you would find that camera. It's a brick. Ours, you know, I shot on it in, up to 2006. I shot my senior film on it. Um, and it's actually the same camera they used to shoot Texas chainsaw. Um, right. It's, it's an eclair. So it's, I, I think Andy Milligan used an eclair too, quite a bit. He shot on eight millimeter, like unsynced sound too, and some 16, but I think he used an eclair at one point. I mean, a lot of, it was just like, yeah, it was awesome. And I, I think that was another thing too, that really was charming about, um, listening to them talk about making this film was a lot of stuff that, that I remembered from my days in, in, film school of just the relationships you make and no one's that good at what they're doing yet. I mean, everyone wants to be fucking Scorsese and everybody's doing more than one job. Like if you read the credits in this and actually the first really three to almost four up into the kindred movies that we're about to talk about, you'll see that it's the same creative family, a lot like the same way that, uh, Romero yeah. and those guys in Pittsburgh had their own family to where if you read the credits and that, the same names keep popping up, but they pop up in like multiple positions below the line. It's like they'll gaff, they'll edit, they'll also do uh, like lighting and maybe be an a, like a second AD, but it's just like whatever needed to be done. Like these guys kind of came together, but it's also because they're students, you know, like, and they're all trying to basically just earn their keep and frankly, probably a grade for a lot of them. Because they shot it for, I think it was in the actual notes uh, that Mike Gingold wrote for the uh, Kindred Blu-ray is that I think he says it's 90K. Yeah, they said 50 in the... It um, looks more like 50. I don't think it's 90. Well, because I don't... Yeah, I don't know that money went... Because a lot of the... They actually said they got the film for free because, you know, it was... uh, They said it wasn't uh, Kodak, it was Fujifilm, which is cheaper was cheaper, but they also short ends for the most part. I'm not sure about that, but they did basically get some kind of program where it was all for free, which is, I mean, probably short ends. Yeah, exactly. And in that era too, like that's, that's the most expensive thing. Cause like when I was in film school, um, you, 
we shot, especially on Kodak color, like our last two years, we had to ship it off to fucking New York to do art. We're like all the, you know, oh, ev- yeah. everything would go to, do- I mean, even Hollywood ships their shit up there um, when they're shooting in New York, like all the Marvel shows and stuff. And I remember like you send it off and you wait, but it was super expensive, even for like a short film. So you imagine shooting a feature. Yeah, but even the development costs, you you ha- hold the hope that maybe somebody got paid making this, but I highly doubt it that anybody yeah, it did. Look like it. Because the, the interesting thing is kind of the bit of like the controversial history around this movie is because the, the murders in it, to me, you really like it. I liked it more on this viewing that I ever had, just trying to contextualize it, especially as like a jumping off point for these guys' careers. But I still find most of it pretty dull because it has a, a very similar kind of hangout vibe to a lot of low budget stuff. The, the one movie I was thinking about a lot was the David Hess movie, um, To All, to good, all Night. good Night. Yeah. It, it's trying to be Black Christmas, obviously, because of the somewhat holiday setting and the dorm and every, there's no uh, you know real parents or anything around. Although the, the Black Christmas always had, always had that amazing den mother who was drinking all the time. And then the dad. Yeah, exactly. And John Saxon. You don't really get any characters like that. It's mostly the kids. There's like a handyman at one point, but that's, and also like this weird derelict who, who's kind of rolling around. And then the Bobby Ray. Yeah. The dude who comes back at the end. Cause he was selling something. He was there to buy um, the desks. That's it. Yeah. So he was like, I think he was a wholesaler who was like, I'm going to buy the shit cheap and I'm going to sell it. Yeah. Since um, they're cleaning it out. It was like their way to unload it. He just like, I think it's funny in the plotting. Cause this is the, out of all their movies, one of the things that really stuck with me as we'll kind of move forward is that like they get better written and structured but Dorm the Drip Blood is very much like we just got to fill 90 minutes or even like 80 minutes, really, because it's only 82 minutes, I believe. But we just got to basically make a feature. So if it involves like weird hangout love triangles or like fights or whatever in between, like people getting beaten to death by baseball bats or thrown into a pressure cooker at one point, which is my favorite kill, uh, we're going to do it. So it it has that very smoke a joint, drink a beer and just chill with these characters. My problem is I don't find any of the characters particularly likable. So I don't care. At least the girls are kind of hot. So yeah, it definitely, um, something I, I, we've talked about before, just like, yeah, that slashers basically even the, the best to the worst are hangout movies until the, the kill start. And this one doesn't like for me, like the reason I love the Boogan so much is because I like the characters. Like the the monster itself is kind of fucking lame. But until then it's like, wow, these are like really well drawn characters. They're super likable. Even I love Final Exam. I think like you don't have a radish character in this movie. You don't have that that kind of like who was a basically the setup for Randy and Scream. You know, these kind of uh, character really sticks out. They they kind of run together a little bit except for um you find out the killer. Right. Who he is. Um but yeah, which becomes a weird tourist kind of trope for them, storytelling wise, that we'll kind of get into because these guys are sort of obsessed with like the friend zoned incel who goes nuts because the girl won't like him. Yep. Which I mean, I would be mad too if Daphne Zuniga didn't pay me in any mind, but you know, 
whatever. Yeah, it's um, I I saw after I watched the power, I messaged you and I was like, oh, I think I see the tour thing here of of these guys who d- think they deserve love and and when they don't get it, they they kill. Um, which was interesting because I remember like thinking back to like school days, like how tricky auteur theory can be. It's like, or where, where does authorship lie? Right. And it's like, Oh, is it with the right. screenwriter? Is it, you know, you could be the art designer, the producer sometimes, um, like Corman is like the auteur of a lot of his films, even he's not directing it. Sure. Um, but with these films, like even at this level of like basically student filmmaking, and I, I consider the power kind of a student film as well. It's, it, it's not. Like, it has a more money to it, not a whole lot, but yeah, it's only slightly more polished. Yeah, it, but you can see you can see the the improvement, um, which was also why I enjoyed watching these in order. Um, yeah, but you know, there's definitely uh, that like that through line of of the of men who believe that they deserve love they deserve sex from beautiful women and then when they don't they do horrible things and it's interesting because i i would guarantee neither of these guys are like oh i'm really trying to say something like this no they were like hey we got to make a movie and right. there's no pretension to it at all and it's honestly like a pretty clever twist at the end of a movie this small in that we're not going to reveal who the killer actually is, but when it actually happens, you're like, Oh, okay. Like I get it. The only thing I will say is that there's literally no hint at it until the end. It's almost like, he's just like, ah, surprise motherfuckers. It's me. And I'm mad at all the girls. And you're like, yeah, sure. I guess. But yeah, you know, they, they had to end, like you were saying, they had to end the movie, but to bring it back, uh, to the controvert, like the controversy around it is that like the kills in this are pretty brutal. They're pretty bloody. It was a video nasty yep. at one point and pretty heavily edited overseas. I want to say it had multiple titles. Well, actually two titles officially when it was released, um, which was pranks, which was the United States title. Yes. I want to say, and then later it was called the dorm, the drip blood. I might be flip flopping. Yeah. There. So, so death dorm was the name that they gave it. With well, the filmmakers. that's where I was going with his death dorm was never like actually like any released version of death dorm until the Blu-ray existed. Yes. Cause I guess that's synapse as well. Yes. It's yeah. synapse. Um, but I guess, uh, the story behind that is that all the release prints, whether it was pranks or dorm, the drip blood, they were edited both overseas and in the United States to essentially get an R rating or to get a certification. And I think it was still, they were still banned as part of that video nasties list with Mary Whitehouse and stuff. But like their original answer print, which is what is scanned for uh, the synapse Blu-ray and is called death dorm. Like it never, that title, the only time anybody learned about it was when that Blu-ray came out, but that's the only way you could see the movie completely uncut as if they scanned that exact print and they ha- happened to just like find it somewhere. Yeah. I don't, I'd love to know the story of, I love those, I love those stories of like what happened with Nightbreed, like the, the right. cabal cut where it's like, Oh, we found it. It was in a fucking closet. Right. I think it's always in the closet. Even the, um, the lost stuff from, uh, Fritz, Fritz Lang's metropolis. Right. That whole, when they found that stuff, I just think what, I mean, to be that person, to, to like realize, oh my god, um, they they were seeing the same. Or way. even other side of the wind. Like oh yeah, reconstructing that. 
the Duke Mitchell movies are pretty infamous for that. Cause I mean, Bob Murawski, you know, after releasing, um, Massacre Mafia style and working on that, like he more or less found Duke Mitchell's second movie, which was completely like it was abandoned and then he died. Uh, and he pieced it all together using like the footage that was available that he found in, I believe his son's garage. Um, and then using like bar napkins and like notes and stuff that Mitchell left to himself to basically construct the film. And you're like, this is the guy who fucking edited Spider-Man putting together like Gone with the Pope, which is one of the great weirdo outsider masterpieces of all time. Now, I, I love that stuff. And, and, but for, for this film, yeah, it was, I mean, they talked about in the commentary that Death Dorm was their original title. And then the studio said, we're going to do pranks. And that just didn't, makes no sense. And it didn't fucking go. There's it, not a single prank in this movie. There's like, there's like a couple little things that the one guy does, but right. And that's what they said they were going with, where it was him kind of being, but it's not like April fool's day where it's literally it's, built around that concept. Right. Almost, and I, you know? and I, yeah. I love that movie. Um, and then the final was they, they actually said, okay, let's go back to a dorm idea. And the dorm at your blood is a great fucking title. Too. Yeah. It's really good. That's just like, that's an amazing, like, you just because I believe the trailer that I found online and posted on uh, the podcast's Twitter feed, it's still pranks. Yeah, like, that's the most readily available trailer for the movie. I have a DVD for pranks. Oh wow! Yeah, it's like somewhere upstairs in my. But I got the Blu-ray. Just now, it's kind of hidden away. Um, the DVD. I was like, wow, they even have that. And I found a poster for it at Texas Frightmare, um, right? For pranks as well. So yeah, it's really it's interesting with a film like this, like that what the studio was kind of trying to do with it and like make it fly. But the, this version, the synapse like director's cut is really, really brutal. Like, I mean like when, when you can see what's going on and that was the reason I originally, yeah, it's so dark. The reason I bought the Blu-ray was I was like, man, like I haven't, I don't think I've even seen this movie at all because like even the DVD version I'd seen was a really crappy, like yeah, not through like a main distributor and I couldn't see anything like a lot of it's a complete pitch black, like all the stuff in the stairwell couldn't see it. So finally with this, like, well, I mean, even on the Blu-ray, some of it doesn't look great. Like the whole sequence where the killer butchers, uh, Daphne Zuniga's like family yep. and then runs her over with the car. You can kind of it's make it out, but murky. it's, it's re- yeah, that's the best word to use murky. When I love listening to them, uh, talk about like, cause they were, they were saying it too. It's like, man, I didn't know what I was doing and I can't see, they're like, I can't see this one, you know, and they're they, just trying to finish a movie, man. They're just trying to finish a movie. And that is what's funny that when their second film, the power, like they talked about, it's like, they shoot most of it in the daytime outside. Yeah. Like, and it looks great. Like it's, it's, you know, um, it, it looks considerably better because you can see what's going on. But so even in that film with the interiors, there's a few scenes at night are like, what? I can't like, and I understand you don't have a lot of money, but it's like, you can get some exposure though. Like, Herschel Gordon Lewis didn't have money. He could get exposure. So no, 100%. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the power now. Yeah. So Dorn the Drip Blood is 1982, and then The Power is 1984. And it's the same uh, family, again, yep. to, to use the, the same term, uh, because Jeffrey Obrow is the producer. It's even, I believe, the name of the company they're operating under is Jeffrey, Jeffrey Obrow Productions. Yeah. 
And then Stephen Carpenter, he's the uh, DP on them. They write them together and they direct them together. Yeah. And if I watched the uh, retrospective on the Kindred Blu-ray and they kind of went into the partnership a little bit and who played what role. And it sounded like O'Brow was like the producer guy, the guy who got stuff done, who put people together and really like found the equipment, found the funds and stuff where like Carpenter was more of like the, the quieter, more like creative dude. He seems like in interviews. Yeah. And it it, kind of checks out, especially like when you want, like you always hear about like directing teams and how they work and how like one, it's not like some people reduce it to like, Oh, that one does the actors and the other one does the visuals. And it's like, no, that's not how that works at all. It's more like that guy has that personality so he can handle that aspect of filmmaking. And the other guy has the other, like it's almost like left brain, right brain type shit. That guy has that other side of the brain and he can do the more, uh, let's say imaginative parts or like dream some of that shit up. But the power, uh, speaking of imaginative, I, I couldn't tell you what this movie is about. It There's like an Aztec idol that possesses people because it, it's linked to like the, uh, the, the God that they believed in that possesses the dark side of your soul or represents the dark side of like the human soul. But this idol is kind of more or less passed around while we watch the people who get it kind of become possessed and go crazy and almost turn into like monsters because of it. Not almost, they do turn into monsters, but like the logic in the storytelling doesn't make a a lick of sense because we basically have an intro with a professor where he's met with like a weird, I don't even know what that guy's deal is. Like he's looking for the idol or something. Well, I think they've, they've obviously they've known each other um, and so they have a history, but it seems somewhat amicable where, it reminded me of like a, a like a if you tried to make the opening scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but for like two dollars, <laughs> that's what this would kind of look like. Because the professor has a, a real like kind of pompous air about himself, and he's even lecturing. He has the weird like psychic moment where he's lecturing, and like the student kind of makes a joke about the from Dorner Blood. Yeah, exactly. It's the kid from Dorner Dripped Blood, and he like stares at him and goes full like De Palma the Fury and like all the kid the, the sudden the kid's like nose starts bleeding and shit and the, his buddy's like hey I saw what you did to that kid the fucking idol it's inside of you man it's possessing you you, you gotta let it go and you're just sitting there like I have no idea what these people are talking about it may, and it's very strange because like you said the logic of it makes no fucking sense because the next thing we see is that that friend goes out into the desert um, it's actually some nice shots. Uh, yeah. Like after his, well, one of my favorite moments in the movie is that pr- the whole prologue ends with the professor more or less fighting some like invisible entity and then getting lifted up and impaled on like a ceremonial, like Aztec spear. No, it's, it's a flag. Oh, is that a flagpole? So the, the, the flagpole. The, 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 the flag comes I down. was kind of watched was kind of murky. I actually watched it on, um, like Tubi had it for free with commercials. That's how I watched it. And mine just looked really nice. Yeah. For some it, reason. It was I, fine, but it looked like kind of a, like a cheap DVD. Like I wondered if it's taken from, I know Scorpion put it out some time ago because we had a disc at, Oh, was, was there a Blu-ray? The no, no, no. It was uh, just a DVD. Okay. Um, because, I had rented it. I had seen this one before and even logged it on Letterboxd, I noticed. 
but couldn't tell you a fucking thing about it while I was watching it. I, you know, I ended up really liking this movie. Um, like you mentioned before, like this is actually a lot of fun. I think you're going to like it. And it's their Toby Hooper movie. It's, it's, if like the first film is their, you know, I'm not going to say John Carpenter, more like Sean Cunningham or like one of the, the brethren that Friday the 13th spawned. Like they say they saw Halloween, but like to me, that movie's more the product of Friday the 13th. And they talk about that more in the, in the, um, it's second generation knockoff shit, which fine, but this feels like the Toby Hooper, both in the, the trippier kind of visual approach that it takes. And also like, the weird internal logic of it and how like kind of ugly and gross it gets at certain points. Yeah. It's, um, it gets really nasty and something you and I talked about with this film, with all the films as we kind of, again, I think it's a good idea to watch these films kind of in order because you're really going along with them on their journey of getting more resources, but also just getting better at what they do. Because one thing it's like, it comes through a lot, more clearly in this film and is the characters are very much more vibrant and you get like a sense of like who they are. It's like the characterization, even on a script level is better. Yeah. 100% because like you have the first episode and then you have again, which doesn't make any sense is that the buddy who confronts the professor goes out into the desert and gets the, the idol from just some dude like who feels like he's in like a like again like a budget Oliver Stone movie like he's just some Mexican guy like living in the desert and is like he protects be, it yeah he protects it like it, it it reminded me of both Oliver Stone and Hellraiser to where like they yes. go get the lament configuration box it was always yours yeah which I mean to bring up another thing the first two movies these guys made are the first couple scores that Chris Young wrote and all of the music in it. You can hear echoes of Hellraiser in both Dorm the Drip Love, but especially the power because it, he, I swear to God, recycles almost note for note the twinkly, yes, almost like fairy tale music that plays over a lot of it. That's in Hellraiser. Like he did that 100%. So, like, but it adds this air of like, uh, production value yes. to it to where it just feels like a fuller meatier film to kind of bite into. But to your point, like the characterizations are kind of interesting because once we leave this dude in the desert, the movie almost becomes like a Hardy girls mystery because you have a, a two hander thing happening because like all of a sudden the idols just in the hands of these kids in the suburbs yep. who, and they say, uh, at one point, like our parents brought it the, home the, the from a vacation or something. They came back from Mexico. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, I thought it was pretty cool. But it's like they also go to have this kind of like Ouija board type thing. It right. is a Ouija board. They go meet um, in this room and they're going to call for spirits. So it's, but he brings the idol with him. And after they leave him, a man is killed uh, by that power. Right. Um, and it's actually a great fucking death. Like, like, There's a lot of really cool, again, like De, not De Palma-esque, but I kept thinking about the Fury while watching this because it's yeah. just this invisible presence that makes people like bleed and explode and like assaults them with like by throwing shit at them magically. And it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I, I agree. There's, I mean, I, and you know me, like I love psychic shit. Like, <laughs> like I love it. I love like 
anything with like telekinesis, I'm in. I, even if it's like the worst movie, even if it's Rob Zombie lyrics, serious, I don't even fucking care. And like, I read the book, The Fury. I was so obsessed with that shit. Like, I love. Obviously, I love Carrie. I love. I love Scanners a lot. Um, Patrick still lives. I, also, I mean that shit for real. I love. I mean, I genuinely love. I love that movie for a lot of reasons. Um, but what's cool about this film again is you can see them like learning as they go. Yeah. And it, but again, listening to them, you know, do, I think they're very charming when they're on their, um, on the commentary on dormant plus, I really, really like these guys. Like they're, they're down to earth and they're very honest about, they see, they come off as normal in, in the, uh, behind the scenes thing and on, uh, the kindred discs too. Like I want to watch guys. that. I mean, I mean, I might borrow the disc from you again. Cause I'd like to, to watch that. I think they just come across as like guys who knew what they were making. Well, even in the dorm and drip blood, they're talking about like, they're like, Oh, and we have another walking scene and they're walking. Like they're, they're like not trying to be like falsely humble, but they're just like, yeah, like we were filling time and we, they're like, but yeah, what's the point? It's the plot really takes off here. Right. And, but they I, were working out ideas. It was like, this is how you put a movie together. The, the other analog that it reminds me of was a uh, Wes Craven, like more yeah. or less learning on the fly from last house of the left, pretty much all the way up through deadly blessing, like how the mechanics of, of making a film kind of work in real time, because like the jump from the power to, uh, or the, from during the drip blood to the power, I wouldn't say is as drastic as a, a jump from last house to Hills have eyes. No, but like it's there. Like the progression kind of works. I think the kindred is the one where it finally feels kind of all put together. Yeah. But to go back to your, your point about the characterization too, like there's two things happening here. You have the Hardy girls mystery and then you have almost like, again, this like $5 dust bin version of like a, like a bringing up baby style, like screwball comedy with these two national enquirer style, like, like sensationalist, like reporters who that's where the incel character in this one comes from is he's more or less like the reporter's aide. Like he's like, they're working together as writers. Well, he's just her friend or she just, I thought they were working together. It seems like they're working together. They're not. So he just came to stay with her. And then he inserts himself in the situation. Oh, like that's my understanding. They, they don't make it very clear, but he he kind of just like shows up because he's he's coming to stay with her. Like they have a history. He's in their her office like all the time, like working with her. So I just thought they work together. No, because she doesn't want him involved. And then oh, he I keeps, missed that like, detail. He keeps inserting himself. So he basically and it's it's early in the his presence in the film where they're at like, like a diner, and he says, hey, "Why didn't you ever respond to my letter?" And you're like, "Oh, this guy." He's been in love with her. I think they had a tryst for a bit. It didn't work out. He's madly in love with her. And he's like, oh, it's cool. You know, it's watering the bridge, I guess. Right? Right. And you can see he doesn't take it well. And here again, we have another, you know, an incel character, as you said, who this one much more on the nose because it's also built into the film. I don't know how much more on the nose it is because, I mean, like the first one literally is like, why didn't you love me? <laughs> like what? screaming it in dialogue. But I get what you're saying is that like this one's more, I think this is this movie. The power is what dorm. The drip blood would have been and probably a better movie. If kind of like what I said to you is that there's nothing leading up to that turn at the end of the movie to where this actually shows you the progression and like actually 
to your point, characterizes him properly as like this guy who just is obviously just holding on to this unrequited love and it's like poisoning him. And then the idol and whatever spirit it represents, it's like prodidal or something. It's it's something Dakotl, like Kexakotl, which was the white god. Yeah, well, I kept thinking of uh, the Larry Cohen movie... Q. Q, yeah, yeah, because it sounded movie. pretty. Yeah, it's like hexaquadal or something, whatever. Pedaquadal, yeah, pterodactyl. I don't know, but <laughs> no, like, yeah, yeah. He he becomes the monster by the end, and honestly, there's a bunch of like again mean spirited violence in this. That's like, it's pretty brutal. Like it, it yeah. really. The one thing that they do throughout their filmography, even when they split off and make movies themselves, is that they operate on the Corman rule of like something's got to happen almost like every seven to eight, like Corman's rule is every 10 minutes. Like there has to be a car crash, sex, whatever this operates almost as like every seven to eight minutes. Like there's gotta be a monster. Somebody has got to be getting stabbed. There's like, something's got to happen. Logic be damned. There's a lot, there's car crashes. They're real into like vehicular mayhem a lot, which is, which I admire in any filmmaker. They are, a lot of vehicular stuff. Um, you see some of that in the Kindred as well. They oh, you really see it in the Kindred. There's one car stunt in that movie that fucking rules. It's brutal, and I love it. There's what's cool about them though too is something you mentioned when we were watching the Kindred is, and this applies to the power as well is they're getting more toys with every film, right? And you can see them be like, oh man. And what's cool is you can see the excitement of. Right, they just love a good fist fight too. Sure. Even from, from Northern Dirt Blood on, like they have it, like up to like Servants of Twilight has just like a lot of fucking fist fights, like a lot of good. They love brawls. action. They, like, lo- they really like action. It, they love to do the action, of the, but also like they know what they can afford. You right. know, it's like in the frames, of, but it's like yeah, gun blasts and punches, and it's like old school. Like they're they're not biting off more than they could chew, but it's very just like like you're saying the Corman thing of like. It delivers what it, it's almost like the whole, like you read the box and it tastes exactly what you think, like what the box describes. Like I, when I open a box of cinnamon toast crunch, I want it to taste like cinnamon toast crunch. Like it's not fruit loops and they know that like they're delivering exactly what is on the box. It kind of actually reminds me of our Glickenhaus episode. Yeah. Um, A little real and and, then very different filmmakers, but a, a similar mentality of like, Give the people what they want. They're entertainers. Yeah, they're they're full of entertainers, and there's again, there's not a, like real pretension there. Um, but I really the the end violence is fucking awesome. Like the, the his, oh yeah, when he dies, like it's just he breaking apart. It kind of reminds it reminded me of the end um, transformation, the Beast Within. Oh yeah, no, you're right. Where the, yeah. where the cicada guy bursts through, and I, I was like, man, this is like real. That mixed with the. Um, the couch scene death in the thing where the head splits open oh, yeah. and bites windows. Well, they, the guy Paul, Palmer, who worked yeah. with them for a while, uh, Matthew Mungle, yeah. I believe his name is actually went on to win. Isn't an Academy award for Dracula for Dracula for Bram Stoker's. Yeah. So and like, that makeup's fucking awesome. Yeah. Like he does a lot of cool stuff. I mean, and then when, once we get to the kindred, like his work in that is like top notch B movie oh, spectacle, it's man. Fucking great. But before we do uh, the next movie, which is Torment, the one thing I do, there's two things I want to note, is that the ending, there's a stinger at the end of the power to where, again, it's it's a give the people what they want type thing that becomes almost like a defining 
characteristic of their work is that they always have these really weird, either not twists, but like downbeat kind of like uh, final scare type movies where they go to black after it, where like the dorm, the drip blood has that. Uh, it, <laughs> one of the the things that actually makes it interesting is the incredibly grim ending right down to the, the, the gallows humor that like uh, kind of goes right before the credits roll. Like it's, it's a gross weird way to end the movie. And they do the same thing with the power. Now the power is more it. That feels De Palma esque as like, almost like the carry ending of like, Oh, send them out of the theater. Basically. Or Friday 13th. Yeah, exactly. So, but again, the logic behind it doesn't make any sense. It's the monster movie version of that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the next movie I do want to talk about is actually one that Obrow and Carpenter didn't direct. But it comes from the their same kind of creative family, and they worked on it. It's a movie in 1986 called Torment. Uh, it's a very, very small movie. It was made uh, by Samson, Aslanian, and John Hopkins. Now, John Hopkins was one of the writers on uh, The Power. Mm-hmm. And then he also worked as a production manager and an assistant director. And then it's also produced by Stacey Giacchino, who was like one of Jeffrey O'Brow's like kind of right hand, like women producing partners. And you kind of watch, if you watch the credits of the movies, you see all these people also kind of progress into different roles. Like, cause she starts almost as like a co like a, a associate producer yep. on Dorm the Drip Blood and then is full on like a producer on this movie. But like when you watch it, like Stephen Carpenter shoots it. Uh, Jeffrey Obrow is operating as like a production coordinator more or less. And it's the same kind of vibe, like the same uh, actors show up from the power or at least one. The main antagonist is like kind of has a bit role in this. But it's this very contained, weird serial killer movie where this strange dude with these big ass glasses going around and like murdering women. And at the same time, again, the, the, the logic behind the actual like plot motivation doesn't really work. This cop who's the, uh, the bad guy from, uh, the power has he, his fiance coming into town wants to meet his mother, but he puts off before they get, uh, married which again, doesn't make sense because it's like, okay, wouldn't you have met your mom if you're engaged to this woman? Like, wouldn't she have met your mom like a long time ago? Maybe not. I don't yeah. know. But she comes in and he gets so wrapped up in the case that he more or less postpones their marriage and puts his fiance in this old, weird kind of like mansion in the middle of nowhere with his wheelchair bound mother while he goes out to investigate. And then the killer knows that he's being investigated by, by this cop and basically goes to this old house and starts uh, terrorizing the mom and the fiance. And it's this really weird single location movie that obviously wasn't made for much money, but it's really quirky. Um, it again, like it only runs like, I think the cut I watched was like 79 minutes, but it's all character work. Like you can tell that they're, it's weird to call them like actors, directors, but like this is just a bunch of like creatives getting together 
we have this location, we have this money, we have these cameras. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was almost like leftover money from like the budget of the power that they just were like, well, we can shoot this other thing. The only thing that doesn't make sense with that is that this one, Torment, is shot in San Francisco. Okay. And where the the power and, well, during the Drip Blood is shot on the UCLA campus. And I believe... Power's LA. The power's LA and like more Northern California. Um, but it's it's really, it's a cool little movie that was actually put out on video by uh, Roger Corman in New World. Yeah, I, d- I didn't get a chance to watch that one, but... It's, it's worth checking out. I believe that's another one that Scorpion... Uh, put out, I believe on DVD and Blu-ray because I, I think Kino has it on their site for hmm. sale for only like seven bucks or whatever. Cool. But it's also a, an interesting moment of like these guys getting their movies out there through, let's say maybe not disreputable means because Corman's not disreputable, but like he was running a certain kind of factory, but the power is weird and notable because it was put out by Edward Uh, Montoro, who was like one of the notorious kind of exploitation distributors and and became a more or less like a a legend in that sphere because he ran a company called VLI. I'd have to look it up, but I believe it's VLI. And he became known for importing Italian movies. Like he brought uh, Beyond the Door in the the famous Exorcist knockoff. He brought Great White in, the famous Jaws knockoff that Universal sued into oblivion. And, uh, uh, you know, basically you can't see it anyway in the United States at this point, at least theatrically. Um, then also in- invested in a bunch of really small kind of B-movie type stuff. But the infamous part comes from the fact that, like, towards the end, he, he I believe the legend goes he got divorced fell quote unquote ill and then VLI was going bankrupt at the same time. And he more or less, it sounds like was faking his illness, came back, stole millions of dollars from, you know, whatever remained of VLI's like bank accounts and then vanished into like thin air, never to really be heard from again. While they, like the company failed, no debt, like all the debts were like left to everybody left behind and like, he just became this weird, like villainous figure in, in the, the history of exploitation cinema. That's a shit move, but also kind of baller too. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy story, you know, especially because like we like a lot of these movies that he put out from that time period. And it's just like, oh yeah, the, the, the people who put these movies out were fucking crooks half the time. I mean, like Bryanston, like all the yeah. all the Texas Chainsaw shit. Oh like, yeah, I mean, that was straight up a mafia front. Yeah. <laughs> so... But now we're on to the the movie of the moment, The Kindred. Um, I'm going to toss this to you because I've watched it twice now and have a pretty concrete opinion. But like, what did you think? Like, we watched it together last night, and I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about it. Man, this movie is fucking great, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, I saw the cover. I've I've seen. So I've known about the film for a while, and I've always it's heard one of those great iconic video store covers. Just the, the monster in a bottle, into your head, yeah, in a baby bottle, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I remember seeing that at the NIST. Never watched it growing up, but I was like, "Oh, that looks fucking gross." And I'd heard 
that it was notoriously pretty gross too. And so I had never seen, and I remember when I first was into Dorm That Drip Blood and I was on IMDb, I remember seeing like, oh, they did that too, but I just never went and found it. Um, and I remember we were talking about this and you found the Blu-ray has been released by Synapse and, you know, I see the cover, which has this giant fucking like hybrid monster. I'm like, wow, like that looks really cool. But I also know like Blu-rays from that era or, you know, transfers of films from that era are usually exaggerating um, <laughs> what might be in the film. Sure. Um, or or you know, not even the, the modern transfer, just like the posters. Like, yeah, you're not going to get the movies promised in the cover. And this one actually delivers. Um, it delivers so much. It's like it's de- it's a delightful movie through and through. There are some really good characters. Steiger's just sent from heaven to take care of all of us sinners. It also the monster shit is so good and, and goopy and just nasty, like really nasty. And for me, just like the the climax alone. Like they really put the money out there, and for the you know, we you talked about like these just per- buckets of monster jizz. Just I mean, like really, and like just ropes everywhere. And there's this, there's a scene we talked about where like Steiger gets ropes St- so St- hard. Steiger's like sliding down this like this incline, um, and <laughs> so displeased with everything that's happening. And he he like he they just literally could tell a PA just like. Hit him with, and it's it. It looks like the ectoplasm from the first Ghostbusters, like from the library, or the slime from like Double Dare or whatever. For all those old like Nick shows, like that's what it reminded me of both times when I watched this. Now is when Rod Steiger gets slimed at the end of this. It he has a reaction. He has a lot a beat. like one of the kids from one of those game shows. It's like oh fuck. He he winces and not in like a funny way. It's like he winces like. Fuck! What am I doing in this movie? And also, then, like he didn't know it was gonna happen either. He's very surprised. It actually reminds me a lot of then of um, Bella Gosi dying in like Bride of the Monster, like in, in Ed Wood. Where he's oh like, yeah, oh, you know, just or you know, <laughs> or like or Quint, you know, oh, be, sure. being, being dragged down to the monster. But you know, it really like you you mentioned it before I watched. It, I was like, dude, it's, it's a Stuart Gordon movie. Yeah, it's the best Stuart Gordon movie that Stuart Gordon never made. It's the re- same year as Reanimator. Wait, Reanimator's eighty. Six. Seven or I think six? It, I think it's six. Okay. It's I, right around the same I, exact time. That, because it reminds me a lot of his movies, both in terms of like the goopy creature feature stuff, but like the whole setup is just, it's reanimator and from beyond. Like it fits totally with that because it's about, here's this, this scientist who is told by his mother on, on her deathbed. And that's uh, Kim Hunter, the legendary actress, Kim Hunter. Yep. In one of, I believe her last roles, like she doesn't look great in it, but she more or less tells him that there's these crazy and like almost like a fit of dementia is like, there's these crazy experiments uh, that she was a part of that were secret that were happening in this mansion where he more or less grew up. And it's this weird, like Peter Jackson style, like Gothic mansion in the middle it's of like a frighteners house. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or or like the, almost like the house from psycho a little bit, like, or frankly, the, the, the house, um, that the, the mad scientist in from beyond yeah. is in Pretor- and, Pretorius. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Pretorius. Um, but, uh, he goes to more or less investigate 
and sees and finds all of this antiquated, almost like fifties and sixties style, like scientific uh, laboratory that she literally set up in his old uh, bedroom, you know, after he moved out, I guess. And like, meanwhile, mad scientist Rod Steiger is hot on the trail and is just going totally ham in like, because one of the cool things about this movie is that everything like you, you, if you watch these in order, like we did, you, you're picking up on the ticks that they, they kind of indulge and, and like to repeat. And here the script, like the storytelling is actually pretty good. It's just that all the expositional scenes play like daytime soap stuff. Steiger is so Steiger's soapy. all in on the acting man. Like he, like there's no, there, he wasn't just collecting the paycheck. Like he was obviously, but at the same time, like he, he gives it his all. And there's a scene where he confronts Kim Hunter and is like, you need to tell me about Anthony. Tell me before you lose your life. And he's like shaking and red faced. And then she starts screaming at him. It's almost like, like Stuart Gordon and Douglas Sirk like had a baby. Cause it's all bathed in this really weird chintzy, like neon light. And like the sets look like they cost like $2. But like these actors, they're, they're going for it, man. He's so like, you had told me like get ready for Steiger, and I'm I mean, <laughs> just get ready. And I, I, we talked about it when we were watching it. Like I fucking love Steiger. Yeah. Like, I mean, like obviously in the heat of the night, and well, you turned me onto a movie of his, his earlier this year called uh, Wolf Lake, Woo! which is real <laughs> underrated, and he also just just dives head into uh, full Rod Steiger mode. Also, the good hairpiece. Yeah, great hairpiece in that too. Um, m- questionable at best hairpiece in the kindred. Actually, we're just going to be honest. We're one of the worst rugs I've ever seen in any movie. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like, unless the only way it's good is if it's supposed to look like a bad hairpiece. Yeah. Like I don't think that's what they were it. going for. Cause it looks really bad. It looks like he murdered a ferret and put it on his head. Like it's like the glue. It kind of like real bad. They, they glued it to his head. It's pretty bad, but he, he There's, wisely wears a hat for basically the second half of the movie when he shows up because he has to go out in a rainstorm. Because I had that that question when he starts chasing them, and I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't get out in the rain because it's gonna wash that and then fucking it, hair and then it off. Cuts, of his he's head. got the hat on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a, um, a scene we talked about too where he comes and he's talking to our our, our main character and. He's wearing this like blue short sleeve dress shirt, but he looked just like my technology teacher from middle school. His 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 gut is like hanging over the side of these pants. He's got a shitty tie on. The short hair, sleeve like work shirt, just really like like man, are you trying to make him look like ass? He looks like he's gonna try to teach you how to operate a cat machine. Well, seriously, yeah, yeah, he's yeah he he has that very much. He's like, well, here's your problem right here. You know, you yeah. you, you didn't hit the choke. You know, like <laughs> you could like see him doing that. <laughs> Why does your birdhouse look like shit? C minus. Seriously, <laughs> what was his name, Mister? Yeah, our technology teacher literally looked just like that. And yeah, had a big white beard too. We called him Santa Claus. Oh, really? Yeah, I feel like Steiger like. He does. He might not even benefit from a beard in this movie. It might make him look worse. Like it would make him look like a homeless guy, like broke into whatever like <laughs> hospital he's working at. Well, there is a really cool scene earlier on um, in the hospital where they uh, 
you, you find out that Steiger basically has uh, a little bit of a scam going where whenever it's a car right. accident, um, he has made a deal with the ambulance driver to lose the body um, it, through any means necessary. To disappear the body. Disappear the body. Oh, I don't know what happened Which, again, to it. doesn't make sense because, like, the opening, like, the, the prologue of this movie is literally like a Porsche losing control on like a highway and crashing into a mobile home and exploding. And it's you're like, awesome. what am I watching? Meanwhile, his weird like Igor thug type dude and the, the, the ambulance driver like make this deal to steal the body. And to, to your point with the conspiracy, Steiger reveals that he has... Almost like a, a doctor. Oh, uh, what's Moreau? No, 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 not Moreau. What's the name of uh, the evil villain from Swamp Thing? Oh, uh, Arcane. Yeah, he like a Doctor Arcane style kind of like layer from Return of Swamp Thing, where yes. he has all of these like mutations. Is that supposed to be in the hospital, or yeah, were they at his home? It's in the hospital. Yeah, where they're just all these mutations down in the basement. He just feeds the ambulance driver when the ambulance driver tries to shake him down for more money. He's like, yeah, fuck you. And then these like big mutants come out and like eat him, and you're like, and what you is never happening? see them again. There's nope. one who's a really... Well, big, um, you we'll get into it in a minute. You kind of do. You oh. see an extension of them, let's say. Right, but you don't see those that that, that one layer big, ever again. The big dude, like he looks like almost like Rondo. Um, what's his name from um, the character face from like Rocketeer? Oh yeah, like uh, and what he, did remind me of the the all the weird rubbery experiments that they did make in Return of Swamp Thing, where he's like running through Arcane's lab, and so they're like cool. behind the bars and shit, and you have the 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 squid monsters and and like. There's the, there was the fucked up bee monster. Yeah, exactly. Like, I was so sick. I was like, he's like, yeah, but you never <laughs> see those again either. It's just, just like this weird thing yeah, to your point of like, it feels like kids almost in like a candy shop to, to a certain degree because they're like, Oh, we have how much money to make this movie? Sure, man. Like we're going to spend all of it to make the goopiest, most latex laden monster movie that you can imagine. It's also like you talked about earlier, like, um, as they go on, they're actually pretty good with actors. Uh, but I think that we talk about Brad, who's one of the, yeah, the kind of, I'd say the, the, the supporting character in the movie, probably like the most important to the plot besides our, our hero. Also the um, most colorful. He has the weird boom box that he, he carries around to deliver messages when he doesn't want to talk to people because he it start the first time you meet him he's he's quitting smoking and he doesn't want to talk to anyone so yeah he has this boom box and it's it like he plays he hits he hits like play and it's like yeah i'm uh i'm not talking to anyone then he has this like contraption he made where he has one cigarette inside um and in case it, of the apocalypse in case, yeah in case the apocalypse but also it keeps shredding the cigarettes he goes well i'm trying to quit Blah, blah, blah. You know, but he's really... He also talks like Jerry Seinfeld at certain points. It's it's such a bizarre, colorful performance. He's really intense, and he he's, like, handsome, but sometimes not. Uh, but he really brings the most, I think... He's probably one of their best characters they've done. Oh, he's he, my favorite by, a, like, a, a mile. He's very unique, because the main dude is basically just, like, a mimbo... Like he's just the hot doctor. Well, you also even very commented that yeah, he's very soap opery. He's the uh, the the creepy dad or stepdad from Scream for Help. 
Very much. Uh, that's him. Lantern Jaw. Um, David Allen Brooks. But he's, I mean, like he's, he's serviceable. He, he, he does, the, he does the job, you know? Um, yeah. The majority of the actors outside of like Steiger and the guy who plays Brad, who I've been trying to look up while you talk, Peter Frechette, hmm. uh is the one who played Brad. But for the most part, they're all functional. The other one I would shout out is, uh, well, two girls I would shout out. Your girls are Amanda Pays. Yes. Ooh. And uh, Talia Balsam, who's almost like the dry run for Willow and Buffy. And would go on to play Mona Sterling in Mad Men. She's so adorable in this movie. Because she's also doing a late 80s. I mean, obviously it's 87. But with the t-shirt and then like the flannel over it. Like yes. the arms. She almost looks like Annabelle Sciorra in uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Like that kind of look. Bit, yeah. like, like, hey, I'm just around the house kind of mom look. And I'm like, yeah, it just, it works. And Amanda Pays is just uncomfortably hot in this movie. From the great Leviathan. So Yeah, I'll talk about that later. later. Um, but, but you also have Julia Montgomery from uh, Revenge of the Nerds, too, yep. showing up. Like, he, the, the other defining trait that these guys have owned throughout their entire career is that they like photographing pretty women. I mean, Daphne Zuniga's her first fucking movie was Dormant Pure Blood. Who disowns it. She, like, denies that she was ever in it. What's funny, though, because she was at Texas Frightmare a couple years ago, and on her sheet thing... Oh, really? ...from... Because it was like, she doesn't have a lot of horror bona fides. Well, she needs money now. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I like She's her, mostly known for, what, Spaceballs, Spaceballs, and then for horror, I mean, this is probably more known than The Invitation. Oh, that's right. I forgot the, about she the plays Invitation. The killer, she plays her and her killer sister. Not a great movie. No. Oh, it's rough. Yeah. God, it's just boring as shit. Like, great penis costume in it, though. That, that is very true. And I, and I, I don't mind a, um, uh, a slasher set in a department store. Sure. I've never... I mean, I think Chopping Mall is technically, in my mind, a slasher with robots. Yeah. Well, they shot a version with a guy. Well, yeah, and well, the other, well, I know that, but I was trying to think of other examples. I, Intruders, a supermarket. Well, then there's the one, I'm, I'm, for, it's the Stephen Hopkins film he shot in Australia before he came over and did um, Freddy. Okay. Um, before he did part five. It's called um, Deadly, Deadly Game, I believe. Oh, okay. I know what that was. And it's, it's yeah. cool because it's, there's a cop that they piss off. Um, it's like these like punk like Australian kids. I think it's supposed to be America. No, no, it's Australia. They, they have accents, and they're just like out there. And there's this cop who's always like giving them shit for smoking and like sure. getting into trouble. And then he, they piss him off one too many times, and then they they go to party. And one of the guys, his dad runs like the equivalent of a, um, what's what's an old department store style like Montgomery Ward or something where it's like six stories high and it's like mattresses like, what, like what's the one oh like a sears almost like an old like an old school like 50s right. sears like with like multiple levels and where you um, could go there and get anything anything like there's there's de- literally departments like with different and macy's maybe yeah like yeah. that kind of thing and it's awesome because it's hopkins like super hungry i think he's in his 20s when he made it and it's just this badass i think also the the main weapon is a fucking crossbow and it's like, this, oh, I know like exactly this, what movie you're talking evil about. Now. Cop. Yeah. He's like wearing like black leather That's and good shit. stuff. It's a good fucking movie. But yeah, um, the cop's almost like a weird like character from like the Road Warrior Mad Max just wandered into a slasher. Very, very much so. And he kind of looks like Arnold Vosloo from Hard yeah. Target. He has that kind of like really like severe face. Um, but back to the kindred. Yes. Uh, so they show up to this old house. It's basically uh, 
the, the kid, well, not the kid, but like the, the son, the son. Uh, of Amanda, because they keep repeating her name, Amanda, Amanda, especially Red Rod Steiger screams it a lot. Um, but he shows up to investigate. They more or less uh, go through like session nine style through all these tapes and recordings of like the, the experiments that she was doing. Meanwhile, like one of the cool, coolest things to me, at least about this movie is the fact that like Obrow and uh, Carpenter are like, oh, there's a monster here. Like, they don't make it a mystery. Like, as soon as these guys show up, the fucking monster eats the dog, and nobody really comments that the dog gets eaten. Like, it's just this weird little set piece that they they build around. That's kind of like a cliche, but, like, the dog goes and, like, scrapes at something in the, like, a hole in the deck. A little, like, tentacle comes up and then just snatches the dog away and eats the fuck out of him. But that dog never commented upon again. He is monster food. But we find out as the movie goes along that the monster is more or less the, <laughs> the result of many failed abortions that Kim Hunter had. That every time that she had an abortion, they would more or less use the tissue to create a monster. And he a is a hybrid monster. And he is more or less the main character's dun 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 Lovecraftian monster brother. Yep. What a movie. Um, it's, be, ooh, yeah. And the monster attack set pieces in this are fucking amazing. This has a entire sequence that revolves around what I lovingly refer to as Chekhov's watermelon. It's, it's nuts. Cause there's this whole setup where, I mean, yeah, they really hit you that this watermelon's important. <laughs> like, this watermelon's coming back. So like <laughs> they're at this like fruit stand. This woman, I guess is not really a part of the group, but gives one of them a ride, grabs a giant fucking like long watermelon. It's and a big watermelon. It's a, it's a big like fucking watermelon. And they bring it back to the car. And she goes, all right, this is, this is for you guys. She's like, this is for my parents. It's for their anniversary. So they put it in the trunk. She they, leaves the watermelon outside right next to where the dog got eaten. It leaves it out there. And then, um, there's even um, like a music stinger around the watermelon. It's like put down. It's like, dun, well, and well like, yeah, well, yeah, because it kind of like shakes a little bit on top. It's on top of this, this fridge is an outdoor fridge. And then Brad, he's like, man, is there any fucking food around here? Like, Hey, maybe out there. I he goes, yeah, I got you. I got you guys some melons. He goes out, grabs a watermelon and brings it in. And he gets ready to stab it. And she's like, no, I told you, I got you guys cantaloupe. That's not for you. That's my parents' anniversary. He goes, all right, brings it back outside. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this, like, law. I'm like, Jesus, they, they it's a whole it. sequence. It's, it's, I mean, it's like multiple scenes dedicated to a watermelon. But when it reveals, so she puts the watermelon in her back, in her back seat to leave to guess, go to her parents, whatever. Drives home. And this, you know, this tentacle thing comes out. Um, More or less impregnates itself inside the watermelon. Well, yeah, exactly. It, it, it breaks open. It's just this this like massive tentacles. Like there's no body. It's just tentacles. Oh it, no, the the body's in there because remember it oh, like it breaks out, squirms out, and then like because the it sets this whole. She's driving home. The the watermelon's in the back seat. And then, like, it it keeps cutting back to where the watermelon starts shaking, and then these tentacles like burst out of it. And it's a really amazing practical effect because, like, it's it's doing it in camera as like yeah. this, this puppet kind of rips the watermelon open and just emerges from it, 
But meanwhile, the tentacles are like slithering around and like they go under her skin. They go under. Well, they they go. They like wrap around her, like wrap around her neck, like pin her to the car, more or less. There is a weird detail in this scene. I picked up on the second time is she's driving barefoot, which I, I don't understand why. But well, anyway, she's kind of a hippie. Yeah, kind of, but it's still a little weird. But yeah, then the tentacles like wrap around her and they start like going up her nose and in her eyes and shit and like the 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 effects and like makeup work is so cool because you see like the the snaky things like moving under her skin and then she looks in the back in the rear view window and that's when you see the monster it just emerges and it's like it's straight up like an old one style like red-eyed like monster with like a, a mouthful of like jagged teeth and shit but back to the vehicular mayhem they just drive the fucking car off the cliff and the, the car more or less just run, like runs into like a ravine and like a ditch, but it's a full on like Hal Needham style like well, car jump. It That's what I mean. Yeah, it yeah. flips over like to, like nose first. But again, another weird storytelling thing that I don't get. Does the monster crawl out and come home? I think that I'm not sure. <laughs> like, like how far is she driven at this point? Like, like it's just such a weird, they set up this whole set piece, but it wasn't until again, the second time where I started thinking about it and I was like, wait, how did the monster get home? Did it know to go home? Well, and that's not Anthony either. That's like one of the other ones. That's right? what I mean. It, yeah. does, it doesn't 100% make a ton of sense, but man, it fucking rules, dude. Oh, it's great. Like the monsters are, they're kind of basket Casey, hen and lottery too. Yeah, very like, hen and lottery. Yeah. And, and like they have these like creepy eyes like, or, or actually running a lot of the, the baby from it's alive. Yeah. A lot um, of that too. And just, but just drenched in like syrup and KY and it's real gross and slippery yes. and ugh, it's just disgusting. Um, but like the only thing when we compare it to Stuart Gordon that I, I should say is that, you know, one of the main characters in this at is a beautiful woman played by what is her name? Amanda pays pays. She's a scientist who just shows up basically out of nowhere at the mom's who, funeral. Who said that she, she loved his mom's work. Yeah. And then tags along with them and stays in this house and more or less tries to seduce this guy. And this guy like resists him for or resist her for like Talia Balsam, which like, honestly, I would have, a, I, I'd have a tough time deciding as well. But where I'm going with this, with the Stuart Gordon thing is that all of these women would have been naked at one point yes. or another in his movies. And like in this, like he put Barbara Crampton in fucking dominatrix gear and they're like their second film together. Like he had no shame. So like, this is the, it's still R rated. And like we said, very goopy and gory and everything, but like there's almost no sexual element. The abortion stuff is sleazy, but like it's, it, yeah, even that isn't really hit upon. You have to more or less put two and two together. Cause nobody screams like abortion or anything. It's just them being like, wait, there were four others and you're going, Oh, and then they go through the computer and it's like, terminated 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 and you're like oh they're talking about abortion monsters this is fucked up yeah and it, but again there i don't feel like it's intentional you yeah. know i i don't think they're trying there's to, no subtext th or well and they're not even trying to do abortion monster it's more like this they're, they're like oh that's the science of it 
Like yeah. that's their explanation versus like other like Stuart Gordon would be like, no, this is the gimmick. Yeah, like, this, this is, is gross. this is like what it's about. Or like, like he said, would be having one of the girls have to be impregnated so they abort a fetus out of them. Like Amanda Pays would be pregnant with one of them, and they would pull the fetus out while she's naked. He'd yeah, be like that because his movies were perverted to a whole other level. I mean, he had decapitated heads going down on people, and like all of From Beyond, Beyond is uncomfortably sexual. <laughs> like this, this is chased by comparison. That was the word I was going to say, yeah. But still delivers all the monster movie goods that you could ever want from a film while just amping the budget and showing like, and again, in the behind the scenes thing that's included with the movie, like these guys talk about how they were like, oh, this was it. Like we thought we were, um, like this was our big break more or less because they're working with uh, FM entertainment who at the time, you know, that one of the main guys on that, I, I can't remember his name. One of the, the main producers and founding partners in that, like they had produced the hitcher, they produced near dark, Same year. but also the one was nominated uh, for witness. He had been one of the producers on it and was one of the ones who like hired Peter Weir and brought John seal uh, to America to shoot the movie and everything. And it's like, they talk about in the behind the scenes thing about having to go meet the quote unquote producer of witness. And they're like, that was a big deal to them. They were like, Oh shit, this guy's fucking amazing. Like I, we can't wait. And they more or less had to this as the story they tell is they originally had the script is based upon something they did together again in college um, that somebody on the, the campus of UCLA at the time when they were there was doing genetic gene splicing experiments mm. and they would more or less, the way they sounded, they, they don't say this out loud, but they, they're, they're like, oh, we used to joke about what would happen if one of those monsters got out or whatever. But you can totally tell that the, the subtext of that is we would sit around and get stoned and be like, Genetic monsters? That's crazy, man. That's wild. But like they held on to this and they wrote they wrote a couple different drafts of the script and then actually sent it out and the producers initially passed on it because they couldn't see it. So they went out, scraped together enough money and more or less shot like effects reels with like their, their regular uh, effects guy to put the monster together and stuff to really sell it. Kind of like how, uh, you know, James Wan and Lee Wan-El you know, sold saw yeah. by more or less like creating a, a sizzle reel for it. And then they came back and were like, Oh yeah, we'll make the fuck out of this movie. So like they, I believe had a couple million to play with on this. I think it's like four, the liner notes say, uh, and you can see it. Like they did not, they left no penny unspent. Yeah. It, it they talk a lot, even on the door of the dirt blood about, because uh, Obrow, you know, ended up being a, a, a film professor, and then I would teach a high school film. Um, but you know, if you want to get a movie made, like you do a sizzle reel. Yeah. Now I don't think that exists anymore uh, because everyone's got a fucking sizzle reel, and I've been to a bunch of film fests where most short films are not adapted into features where a studio is like, Oh man, I want to give you money for that. It rarely, rarely happens. Yeah. No, by today's standards, if you're making your own independent movie, you more or less with digital photography are just, you know, a producer, you know, a family member, you know, somebody who has money, you write the script, you have your little kind of creative cadre, and then you put the money together and you just make it. Yeah, exactly. So like, but no, the, the kindred feels like the big step up, but the, the problem was it just didn't, didn't land. It sounds like. Yeah. I, I wonder why, I mean, 
It doesn't have... Well, I mean, none of the FM guys' movies really made money. It sounds like they weren't great at promoting the film, these the, the genre stuff that they did. Because let's think about it. The Hitcher didn't really make money. Near Dark notoriously didn't make money and become became a quote-unquote lost film for a long time. Still kind of is. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's back to being a lost film, more or less. And this one was relegated to more, to, to like... Uh, video store and VHS, uh, let's say ephemera status for like the longest time because you know Synapse announced this Blu-ray. Like I saw a bunch of people, like physical media heads that I follow, commenting on Twitter, like that Synapse announced wanting uh, to do this Blu-ray 15 years ago, Whoa. and it took this long to come out. Like Brett Gallman, who's going to write uh, the Kindred essay for us this week. He even like noted to me when we were kind of kicking ideas back and forth is he was like, one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that like, I felt like this movie was never going to come out because they announced it so long ago. He's like, I've just held on to my VHS and am like glad I could finally retire it because like, I didn't think it was actually going to happen, you know? No. And I mean, again, with this film, I was so surprised by, how good it was but how big it was because it, you and I talked about this but if there's a really great 80s monster movie like we've probably seen it yeah. I, and that just sounds douchey but it's just true like I have we've consumed so much of this shit for so long I, I seek out anything I haven't heard of and I watch it immediately and, and I, most yeah. of our listeners are probably the same we're like you don't do a secret handshake podcast unless, you, <laughs> unless you've consumed this much media yeah I just and so to watch this film and to say you know, oh, wow, I've never seen this. And also it really, like it, it delivers the fucking goods. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah. It was the thing when we were watching it last night at the movie bar that I kept saying to you is that it was like, I can't believe that this was, it took this long more or less for this yeah. to become a cult thing. And even now it's still like the movie's now out there. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to, to, to hit, with cult film buyers, because I mean, let's face it, Synapse, their discs are pretty high priced. Like this is a $50 steelbook Blu-ray. There's no other edition of it out there right now. And like, there's a reason for that because Don May puts so much work. He He's not vinegar syndrome or arrow where he's releasing, you know, 20 titles, 30 titles a year. He releases like three or four, but he puts his fucking back into those three or four that come out. Like that's uh Suspiria disc that oh Synapse put out is that four K just, yeah, the four K is Woo! amazing. <laughs> um, that the demons, uh, duology four Ks that they put out look great. Like they do. He does nothing. We saw the, uh, the tombs of the blind dead restoration that they did at the exhumed, uh, 24 hour fest. Like everything they do looks just tremendous, but I mean like it's expensive and he's not a big boutique, yeah. or anything. So he's got to charge that much. Uh, other one, uh, Massacre at Central High. Amazing looking Blu-ray. But again, $50 Blu-ray because it comes in like this crazy steel book with a slip cover and notes from Mike Gingold and everything. Like he really, he puts all the effort that he thinks these movies deserve and is meticulous about it. Does Now, does that mean it'll re-enter the, the cult movie consciousness? Maybe, I don't know. I certainly think maybe like people talking about it could certainly help. Yeah. 
But I mean, do you want to talk about the solo movies real quick before we head into the questions? Yeah. Um, so a few we watched, I, uh, I watched, uh, service of twilight today. Um, oh man, it's so, this was the biggest surprise of the ones that we watched because I love this movie. I think this is the kind of movie that I'll probably watch again this year. Um, I'll watch Kindred again this year too. Um, but I love the feel. It has everything I want where it's like this made for TV feel from like, what, 91? 91, yeah. 91. It was originally, the, the, the frustrating thing about this movie is there's not much information at all, like even in like, archival type, like looking up like New York times type stuff. Like I couldn't find much of anything if at all, but the little bits I scraped together were that this was originally intended to be a theatrical release, but became a movie for showtime, which honestly I don't 100% buy because it walks the weird tightrope of like almost being PG 13. Yeah. I mean, I could see there's, there's no swearing. There's no nudity. It feels like it's shot for television. If at the very least it's at least edited for it. That That's the thing is like, even the coverage and the budget feels like a TV movie. The aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, just, it just looks, you know, and again, I'm, I watched a standard definition rental. I did, um, I literally watched it in 15 minute increments on YouTube. Yeah. I, I just watched it on, um, what was it on? Just Amazon prime. I rented it. I think I saw it on there afterwards, but I Googled it initially and found the YouTube stream and went, Oh, this is fine. I guess it's really, it, you know, what's great is it actually reads or it, it flows like a Dean Koontz store, uh, novel because yeah. uh, and and, Koontz and it's is pretty faithful by all accounts like so, i remember reading this growing up but like i don't remember anything about these books well it, you know and i've never read the book i've read a few of his his books and i'm obviously more of a king dude but what he i what i know of Koontz is that he definitely also subscribes that corman like every 15 pages you got to have a, a horror scene like there's got to be something he was much more of like he wasn't Stephen King where Stephen King was like a writer. Like he was just pouring the shit that came into his Coke and booze addled mind, especially in the beginning. And it's just worlds of imaginations and, and, and playing with language and words and character and everything. Like he's, he's just a real artist where Koontz is a workman. Like Koontz yeah. was like, he harkens much back to like the, the pulp novelists yeah. of like the, the, you know, sixties and seventies who like would get a contract with a company and then be like, okay, so I need to churn like one of these out. Like John McDonald, those movies turned out good or those books turned out good. But like with the Travis McGee novels, like, Oh, you need one of these every month. Okay, cool. And you just sit down and bang it out. Now his were like 300 pages as opposed to like 160, like the John D McDonald books. But like Koontz was just a, this was his career. This was what he did. He, if you could use the word content in the seventies and eighties, <laughs> he created content for, for, you know, grocery store shelves and, and, and Walden books and places like that. Yeah. Yeah. And with this film, it's very, um, wonderfully generic <laughs> too. Uh, yeah. where, where it's just like, you know, 
private detective falls in love with kind of a femme fatale, taking care of her and her kid. Bruce Greenwood sporting a mullet and a gun and so, a leather jacket. Bruce Greenwood is a delight in this movie. He I, would, is, I literally wrote down in my notes here that I would like watch an entire series just based on Bruce Greenwood's sexy P.I. Well, he's beefcake. Like, he's yeah. pure beefcake Canadian in this movie. Beefcake. The best Canadian, Canadian bacon cake. Canadian pork roll. <laughs> but he's like... Like, his whole look, his whole like the, the, the mullet to just beat the band, a beautiful beard. Um, but it's so... Just like by the numbers in the best way, um, yeah. a, a lot of it. And you have the, the well, plot. I mean, it's an omen riff. You know, it's Dean Koontz doing the omen, to where it's like a girl or a woman. Her son is pegged as the Antichrist. There's this cult that's led by fucking uh, Grace Sabrisky. Yeah, that Laura Palmer's mom and the giant from Twin Peaks. Right at the time when Twin Peaks was the biggest show, like in America, because Carl. Strucken, Strucken is the one who plays Carell. Strucken is the yeah. one who plays the 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 giant. On I was Twin Peaks. I was at a Starbucks with him. But he, yeah, you, you told me the story a few times. <laughs> sorry, where he's just a, a very looming individual. But like, uh, he plays her Igor, her like right hand man, the Hammer of God, the Hammer of God. That's fucking cool. But like named Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> name's Kyle. They might as well just name him Gary. Like. But like Hammer yeah, of God, Kyle. They're great villains and they really lean into it. But again, they, they also kind of like the power. You can see them writing like Obrow uh, here kind of working and, and writing the character dynamics because Carpenter uh, wrote this movie yeah. for him. So it's like, you know, they're, they're still working together here, even though they're not directing together anymore. But like... This is just a lean, mean little movie with awesome uh, action set pieces. That whole shotgun home invasion thing, where the 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 cult members come in to try yep. and like snatch this kid away and like just start mowing down. Because that's the other thing is Bruce Greenwood's uh, private eye in this has forty uh, like, coworkers. Like, he just has like a fucking legion of like. <laughs> P.I. goons that I'm like, oh, did you guys like unionize? Like, where'd you all come from? This is crazy. But like, they're all just holding this house down. But these, these cult members come in and just full on like L.A. confidential style, like start shotgunning people. And like, they're doing like wire work and shit. And people are fucking flying through windows. And this was like, I was already into the movie and being like, hmm, this is pr like way better than I anticipated. I was kind of dreading watching mm -hmm. it because especially early 90s TV movies like, I know there's a real nostalgia that people have for, like, the Stephen King adaptations, like, it and stuff. I think they're interminable and awful. I agree. But this movie, like, it fucking shreds, dude. And uh, it so, becomes a road movie, too, where, like, Greenwood and, and the mom and the kid are just on the road. Like, Belinda fleeing. Bauer. Yeah, Belinda Bauer. Um, but again, it, 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 you know, it moves well. It, 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 the action's really great. The character's really great. And... It has the dark, weird twist ending because it has this weird storytelling device that their script does where we see Bruce Greenwood in uh, present day. Yeah. Uh, more or less like he's the survivor of some like great massacre or trauma or something. He's trying to relay it the entire time, almost like Lovecraft style. Very much. And then... Uh, 
it cuts back to like what's happening with this boy and her mom and him protecting them. Well, by the end, it circles back to this and like has a really cool, weird twist ending that apparently, again, I had to look it up, but like this is almost beat for beat from the book. Yeah, it's um, watching it. I did not. I did not know the ending, but I knew the ending. I yeah. said, if this kid isn't the fucking Antichrist, like I don't know what's wrong with the world. Because like it just it it very much telegraphs. Now maybe in ninety one it would have been a little different. Now we're a little bit more as a culture, the more educated to horror twists, especially post Shyamalan. Um, yeah, people are expecting it from a movie. Uh, they we always end with twists now, but that. But if I, I saw this on Showtime in 1991, I would have lost my mind and been like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's really... I'd love to see a, a just a better version of it, like high def, just like a, a Blu-ray of this. This one, 100%. You could remake it, and it would it would really slap. It, that's Again, it has, like you said, it's very lean, and it, it moves like a good paperback. Like, it has the flow. And, and we talked about earlier, I mean, this is also, out of all their stuff, probably the most loyal to the Corman every 10 minutes. Like, yeah. even if it's just a random guy comes in and gets a, in a fist fight, it doesn't advance the plot at all. It's no, just, it's oh, just here's that one. you don't get bored. Something's happening. The audience is into it. it. It's propulsive. Like, it really moves. Like, it's not like, I mean, great cinema, but that's what we're talking about here. It's wonderful, no. though. Like, it's just... But again, these are journeyman dudes who, even from Dorm the Drip Blood, were more or less just trying to make movies that would connect to not just audiences, but financiers and distributors and stuff yeah. so that they could have a career as filmmakers and they didn't have to do anything else. So it's like, to, to one extent or another... I know this is a dirty word, especially in the age of like Marvel, but like they were just, they were trying to create product. They were trying to create content. Like they were like, just hire us again and we'll deliver exactly what you need. Showtime or, or, you know, Roger Corman or yeah. Ed Montour, whoever's going to pick this movie up. Like it, it'll be a thing that you can sell tickets to and you can make money on and then we'll all be happy. Yeah. And I think cause Obra produced it too. Cause he, um, right. He talks about in one of the commentaries, listen to that, uh, He's like, yeah, I, I bought it early. Like, I bought the rights to the book because I wanted to do a Dean Koontz. Because, like, and Koontz was, I mean, he was a high item then. He still is. I mean, he's still a best-selling fucking author. Is he still alive? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, dude. Um, Dude, his Frankenstein series is the shit. He wrote a whole modern-day Frankenstein. Really? five-book series. It's good? It's amazing. Like, it's not, again, like, his prose is not good. But it moves. But it just works. It's all like in the paperbacks are almost like large type. It's not LT, but it's just like big letters. I I, I read every single one in one sitting. So I'm like, all right, time for the next book. They're, they're like 250 pages long and they fly by. I, I read a lot of his books growing up because I always would check his out when the Stephen King that I wanted at the library. <laughs> they're all next to each there. other. <laughs> yeah, they were literally right there. So I was like, oh, I don't have anything to read. And I've read all the Stephen King that's on the shelf. So I'll just grab one of these Dean Koontz novels. I don't remember a ton of them. They all kind of run together. There was one with like a weird like genetic experiment lizard man who went around like raping people and had like a snake dick that whose name I can't remember. Oh, East of Eden. That's, That's right. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's called On the Waterfront. <laughs> It, it was a classic. That's a Philip Roth book, I think, yeah. actually. So I remember Hideaway, the one yeah. with the serial killer that became the movie with Jeff Goldblum and, and like Alicia Silverstone. 
Well, let's calm down, but it's fine. Um, like I'm not, I'm not going to get ahead of ourselves. I'm not out here riding for hideaway or anything, but I remember uh, reading the book because again, kind of like the snake monster dick dude, like there's just image. There were images from like his books to where like he would always have one weird perverted thing where you're like, what the fuck? Like in hideaway, I remember the main killer because that's the one where like Goldblum in the, his character in the book and in the movie, I suppose, uh, gets into like an accident or near death thing. And he gets like a psychic link to like a killer at the same time. And the killer starts hunting his daughter. Who's like Alicia Silverstone. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember the killer that he psychically links to kills this dude on a roller coaster, by like more or less like dismantling his bar and like having him like stand up when it goes under like a, like a, uh, an overpass or something and like decapitates the guy. And it's just one of those things when you're like a, a 13, 14 year old kid that you're reading, you're like, Oh, that's fucking cool. That's weird. But those are the ones, there was another one too. That was about like acid testing mm. to where they like dosed a town. And cause some of his stuff would get like weird and kind of psychedelic, but to where they were more or less doing like acid tests, like mind control stuff on like a small Americana town. But again, his titles they were all like, they weren't like Stephen King. Where like you remember Pet Cemetery, you remember Cujo, you remember Christine. It's like Christine or yeah. or it or like any of the the Tommy Knockers. You know, like that. That's the type of stuff that you remember. It sticks out in your brain. His books were called like Whispers, Phantoms, Phantoms. Ben Affleck was the bomb in Phantom. Bomb in Phantom. <laughs> Dude, I, like, I recently watched that last year. Ooh, like Servants of Twilight was was made under a Twilight. It was written under a moniker or like a pseudonym too. It's like I can't remember what oh. it is, but like originally was published not under the Dean Koontz name, and then became part of the Dean Koontz canon later when he like included it, kind of like a Bachman book type thing. But like, there's none of them. Like even Hideaway. It's like okay. Like that could be anything. He wrote you know? the Funhouse novelization, which was a different story. Oh, that's true. He yeah, did for like, to, to bring it back to Toby Hooper. Again. Yeah, but I mean, like th these guys, it's kind of a perfect match of like material yes. and and workmen. Is that they just saw it and they're like, okay, we can turn this into a thing. Sure, whatever, ninety minutes, but we'll fill it. You know, and then, but again, they they did the same thing with their other two solo movies, is because we watched uh, the Legend of the Mummy. Uh, which was uh, Jeffrey Obrow's alone, um, yes, yeah, solo project where that he wrote and produced for for Apex. Which, if anybody knows what they, they were during the uh, really video store era, they were more or less like an asylum, mockbuster style kind of joint. Their studio that would just put out very low budget shit that was there to like fill shelves, mostly like horror well, stuff, and, and to sound like. To well, trick you sometimes. Yeah, to trick you from time to time, which Legend of the Mummy is a good example of because it's called Bram Stoker's Legend of the Mummy. It's 1997, and it's after uh, both Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola movie, and Kenneth Branagh's uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I actually rewatched half of today. I gotta finish. I might finish it. I don't know. Um, but they were both, yeah, it's, that's like, if <laughs> I think I texted you this, but like Brand, uh, the, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is sort of like the, if Merchant Ivory did walk hard, like it's just, 
it's so bizarre. Like it all, it, it's obviously the same kind of structure as like the, the Mary Shelley like novel where it's like in the North pole at the end of the 1700s, you know, that this expedition runs into uh, Dr. Frankenstein and it's on that stranded boat and the monsters coming for him. So like it's, it follows the, 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 the plot line from the book itself, but the way it's presented is like Brana plays Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Franken, Frankenstein in his own adaptation. And, uh, Aiden Quinn is the captain of the boat and he more or less is like, what are you doing out here, man? And he starts telling him like the story of Frankenstein. But it's totally like in my head, I made the joke to where it's like, hold on, son, give him a second. Victor Frankenstein got to think about his whole life before he dies in the Antarctic with you. <laughs> like, it's just totally like bonkers. And like, I hadn't watched that movie since maybe VHS. I don't think I ever watched it on DVD. So it'd been like almost 20 years, probably. I did not remember how cranked up every fucking scene, like two fucking 11. When everything's also, it. he shot it in like all this like super wide angle shit. Yeah. So it's like it has all the crazy. Like, what is, what was the, uh, the big like three hour Shakespeare adaptation that he did? Was it Richard the third? Well, he did Henry the fifth and, and then he did Hamlet. Hamlet this is the long one he did in like the nineties. Yeah. The, the, the double tape. Yes. One. That yeah. was, that was Hamlet. That was yeah. very ornate and everything. This feels more like that than anything else. This is very much in that vein to where like the set, like Victor Frankenstein's like mansion on the inside has that giant fucking cavernous like staircase that has no like uh well, like a railing on it and stuff. It's just a, a bonkers, circian melodramatic movie. But like, again, watching it 20 something years on after like walk hard and a million parodies and stuff. It almost like if you released that movie today, like people would be like, "What?" what They'd laugh you at a theater. Yeah, yeah, it's just so, it's so earnest. Like, cause he's not playing it for laughs at all. He's just like, "What if I did it as like the classy Frankenstein?" You're like, "Yeah, I guess, sure." And it's it's fun and it's an interesting relic and also like for a dude who you know is basically just returning to small personal movies with Belfast this year. And after like cranking out Thor sequels and, and Jack Ryan movies and like all this weird, like blockbuster stuff that he did, like this feels more like a bridge between the artier Shakespearean stuff that he did and the later blockbuster stuff, because he he's just going for it. And he, again, is trying to make a movie that is just going to put butts in seats because Coppola, again, I for, had forgotten about this entirely, but Coppola's name is on it as a producer, hmm. too. So, as an EP. So, I don't know if that's to capitalize on the success of Bram Stoker's Dracula or not. I would imagine it's at least part of it. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. It, it's just an interesting relic of that kind of era of filmmaking. But Legend of the Mummy, to get back... To our topic at hand, it's uh, very much trying to play on like, remember Dracula, remember Frankenstein, both like Dracula, big hit, Frankenstein, moderate hit, made like almost 120 million, like pretty good. Legend of the Mummy with Louis Gossett Jr., not gonna make that much. Nope. But I'll tell you what, 
Jeffrey Obrow makes a Jeffrey Obrow movie that's self-contained. It's in a mansion. It delivers weird like mummy kills and scarabs killing people and Louis Gossett Jr. doing a real effeminate gay weird pirate thing the entire time. Who's and also like, kind of an incel. Yeah, who's also an incel and has his own kind of uh, uh, hidden agenda the entire time. So like totally fits in. Like, we Work for hire? Sure. Shouldn't have been 100 minutes? Absolutely not. Nope. But you know what? The fingerprints are all over it. I think one of us remarked last night that like you can tell the Apex and the financiers we're more or less here. Like, here's your budget. We don't care. Just go for it. Yeah. As long as it, we can put it on videotape and have blockbuster and Hollywood video, like be able to rent it. We don't give a fuck what you do. Just turn it in on time and under budget. And he's like, sure. Yeah, I've been yeah. doing that my entire career, you know? And then soul survivors is the other movie I watched from their solo output. And that's, that's written and directed by Steven Carpenter and it's a remake of Carnival of Souls in 2001 with Wes Bentley, Casey Affleck, Eliza Dushku, and some blonde girl who's the lead whose name I can't remember. It's where Legend of the Mummy, we actually we watched it together last night. We actually had a, a good amount of fun with this. Soul Survivors is a... It's a chore. It's 85 minutes, but it feels like 850. Mm. Um, Wes Bentley is, again, a charisma void. Always uh, has been. Yeah, always has been. Even in American Beauty, just a total weirdo, like lack of any kind of energy on screen. Uh, Casey Affleck is the boyfriend who dies and is haunting the blonde girl the entire time and showing up as like the idyllic boyfriend, but like kind of also scaring her, which, you know, in hindsight now, sounds like Casey. Yeah. Would you, <laughs> would you want to be haunted by the ghost of Casey Affleck? If you were a pretty blonde girl, I guess is no. Um, oh, and Luke Wilson. So the thing I texted you while I was watching this today is that this is 100%, even though it's a carnival of souls remake and like having seen carnival of souls a couple times, like, pretty faithful to it. It's, you know, car wreck, dead, uh, boyfriend walking through existence, kind of haunted by ghosts. Then you more or less find out that she's been on her deathbed the entire time, but it's more like if Jacob's ladder, the Adrian Lyon movie, uh, were turned into a CW pilot. It, that, that that's basically what it is because Luke Wilson plays like the angelic Danny Aiello character which even saying that sentence out loud is is very bizarre. Yeah. And the entire soundtrack is like late 90s, early 2000s, like new metal, industrial, weird shit. Like, and I say this as somebody who likes Deftones, a Deftones song is the end credits for this movie. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if this fits. So like, but it's totally operating in that post- uh, scream post final destination, really final destination more than anything is what's influencing this movie yeah. here. Um, as I, I believe it might even share some producers with the final destination movies. Um, but it's totally what they're going for is like death, fo death following her after like a tragic accident. Here's some pretty hot stars that are on TV right now. Yeah. Um, but it just, it sucks. It's the, only, it's, like, it's the only way I could put it is that I was just, there were times, because we had said last night with the, the Legend of the Mummy watch that we did, 
is it was like, look, we have a couple options here. We can watch this and be well prepared for the podcast. Or we can watch something for fun and just say, fuck it, who gives a shit about the legend of the mummy? But we committed for the people. But we had the rule to where we were like, for 20 minutes. 20 minutes and we don't like it? Fuck this. We're watching Phantom of the Ball, Eric's Revenge. So like, but you know what? We made it through all 100 minutes of uh, Legend of the Mummy. I almost died during the 85 minutes of Soul Survivors. <laughs> Want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. We're back with questions about 1987's The Kindred. Martin, let's blast through this because we've already run pretty long on these guys that nobody you know even knows about. Uh, so, top three O'Brow Carpenter joints. Go. I would say number one would be Kindred. Now it's just yeah. It, it to not say that would be to be lying. Um, it's the most complete. It's the most fun. It's crazy. It's a fucking movie. Yeah, it's a, it's just it's a banger at the end. Um, two would be still Dormant Drip Blood. It's kind of what got me. And I, I still love it as a slasher. I still love the, the vibe, and I love how cheap it is. And just and again, now hearing all the stories of how they made it, I kind of I like it even more. Third would be Servants of Twilight. Like, yeah, Servants of Twilight. Actually, if if with if it weren't for Kindred, it, it, I could see it almost like bumping up to number one. Like, it's just that's a fun. It's a if fun we watched a movie. version with an actual transfer that looked good, yeah, like I'd like to see an official version of that movie to where it's cleaned up. It, I'm not watching it on fucking YouTube on like a second generation DVD rip, yeah, because like it's out there. I saw that it's more or less on like out of print DVDs from like Lionsgate and stuff for like six bucks on Amazon, but that looks like because I had the tri mark logo. That's, that's what I watched. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be the only transfer that's out there, and it doesn't look great no but i mean i agree with you to where like like especially like say that shotgun siege sequence if that was cleaned up and because they shot a lot of that in the dark in this house with all the lights off and stuff and so it gets a little murky that's that Um, brow signature that brow signature i don't know what's happening (laughs) i don't know the camera was set up the lights weren't exactly on but we shot some people but yeah if, if that was cleaned up it might inch up to number one but I just think the Kindred's just like, it's magic, man. There's yeah. just so much shit in that movie that totally just kicks so much ass and like the creature stuff. Like my number one's the same as yours. My number two would be Servants. Like, yeah, yeah. for the same stuff. And then The Power is my number three. Huh. I just like how odd and like disjointed and uh, kind of episodic that movie is and the creature stuff is an interesting kind of precursor to the kindred with like when his face yeah. like morphs into your, I hadn't thought about the beast within, but that's actually a really good comparison because he turns into like this. It's not a werewolf, 
But it's like a weird, almost like deadite style, like Native American demon. Very thing. deadite. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, I don't know. It, it's very cool looking. And then, like you said, that the whole like melting and stop motion thing when, when he dies at the end is so fucking cool. And you can just see that, you know, it's more or less like the test run of like when they got to the kindred and they're like, oh man, we actually have all the, the money we need to build the Anthony puppet and everything. We're just going balls out. So yeah, but that would be my one, two, three kindred servants of twilight and then the power. Hell yeah. So double feature. So uh, you mentioned it earlier, but it's the Leviathan all the way. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So that movie is so fucking awesome. I, so it was, I think it was right at the beginning of COVID right before I was at my friend, Andrew and Nora's house. I just brought over a stack of Blu-rays. It's like yeah. random shit. And I just put it in and Nora, who sometimes will just like do other stuff while we're watching a movie, like work a little bit. Like Carrie does with us. Yeah. But she was like in, like she put everything down and was like into this movie. And she goes, that's really fucking great. That's like not her type of movie usually. Yeah. And like, it's a, it's a banger. It's fucking entertaining. Like that's George P. Cosmatos, right? It's Cosmatos. And then Stan Winston's team built, uh, built all the monsters. The cool story about the monsters though. And why there's like, they're all very different is Winston let his whole team, like everyone took like a bit and it wasn't like under his like tutelage. It was like, all right, just you can handle the hand. You can handle this part. That's why all the monsters have different designs. There wasn't like a cohesive. Um, it's also because Matos didn't want one too, because he wanted it to be more random, um, not like with it with a almost like. Well, and the end monster is a bit disappointing when it like pops out and yeah, it's well, a giant it's, it's, thing. Well, you you compare that; it's three years after Aliens. So you think of like the, yeah. the alien queen, you think of that and it's just kind of this rubbery. Well, even the kindred, like the kindred looks goofy as fuck. The whole Anthony puppet, especially because like we didn't really mention that, you know, the, the whole like third act, there's an underground like swamp layer beneath the, the mansion that they're awesome. staying in that, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, balsam. Balsam. And uh, falls into that cute, uh, willow prototype just covered in like grime the, the entire time. But like the Anthony monster that comes out, like they fully show it like body tentacles, everything. And then there's the whole, again, shotgun sequence with Steiger at the end where like he comes in with the gun and they electrocute it and it, it explodes and stuff. And like, they don't, they, they don't hide it. Like they don't jaws that thing where in Leviathan with the end thing, they they're, kind of only show you a little bit and it's not great. Yeah, they shoot, well, they shoot around a lot of what they have in that. And I mean, yeah, Leviathan's just fucking like, it was that year where you had four um, underwater monster movies because you had the Deep Star Deep Six. Star 6, The Abyss, Leviathan, and then Lords of the Deep, which was a Corman one. Wait, I thought Leviathan, is that 87 or 80? 80, 89. It's 89. So it was, huh. so... Abyss went into production like I think in eighty six or eighty seven, right after Aliens, but they had all the production problems. Yeah, because they also bought uh, what's his name, the Ormsby uh, film magnet from uh, the Carolinas. Like they bought the nuclear power plant thing from him, yeah. and they got into the legal battle. Yep, and they had to go shoot it in Mexico instead. Right, they, they also shot in, a, in an old nuclear plant um, right. to build all the sets, and it's fucking cool. But of course, like 
There were like James cur- Cameron almost killed everybody in the process. Well, there were currents in the water, even because it was so big that like yeah. you get down there, they were getting dragged around. They couldn't like walk or anything. Of course, it's like one of my favorite movies ever. But yeah, it was that year where basically, I think Abyss was had been in production long enough that everyone caught wind. Yeah, and so like Sean oh, cutting him. It was being like not just copied, but they were. Uh, priming it to be like a disaster of a movie too, of like just a, a total failure. And it didn't do well. Like it was, no, it out was of all, especially compared to his other movies. It's his only quote unquote flop. It would be the closest to a flop yeah. for him. Um, but yeah, it's my, my pick. How about you? I still want to talk about Leviathan a little bit. Oh, I yeah. mean, the cast is so fucking good. Well, and you well, haven't so, even linked it because it's Amanda. Amanda pays. Pays is in both and is a hot scientist in both. Well, and it's funny because Amanda pays, you know, in. Wait, she's the medical officer? No, she is. I haven't um, seen it in a little bit. She, I forget. She's not medical officer because that's Richard Crenna. That's Um, right. That's Doc. Um, Because he's doing the whole Ian Holm thing almost. Yes, where he wants to. And then you have Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern is great in that. Ernie Hudson, Hector Elizondo. Peter fucking Weller. Peter Weller. And then um, uh, Lisa Eichbart or whatever, the, the hot chick from yeah. uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yep. Just, oh yeah, so hot. Um, no, I I love, it's also like I saw on the back of one of the DVD versions I have where it's like it's aliens underwater, but like it is the closest out of all those to be, it's alien, you well, know? that, and then it's, you know, years later, obviously almost, 10 years later, uh, event horizon is basically Leviathan in space. Yeah. Well, very much. And I, I love, it's also similar to, um, to the thing yeah. in that something else horrible happened before on another ship. They find it. It's the Leviathan ship. But uh, the other connection I wanted to make to the kindred is it's also, it's not a supernatural or like an otherworldly monster. It's a genetic hybrid yeah. design. So they were trying to create, which is fucking cool. Um, the Russians were trying to create basically gill men to be underwater for like the cold war and to, which is fucking awesome. Like I wish we would have done a sequel where it worked and that the giant battles under the water <laughs> between like Peter Weller. Well, what's weird to, to jump off of that though, is that Amanda pays spoiler alert has gills yes. in the kindred. Well, cause they, she's one and it, there's actually a scene where it's a really good scene actually, besides the fact that she's, you know, in the, the shower, but like she like strips herself down in Leviathan because she thinks she has the disease. Right. So it's, oh, I remember. Yeah. It's a very effective scene because like you have the Lisa, Ike, Ike Barton order character who she like, pulls her hair out when she's in Cause the, she slashes her wrist. Yes. Right. That yeah. fucked me up as a kid when I first saw this. Cause this was like a Sunday. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but who gives a shit? It's our podcast. I'll tell it again. But I had a, more or less not public access, but like local channel that on a lot of Sundays would play like just horror movies back to back to back from like noon until like eight or nine o'clock at night. And that's how I saw like Hellraiser for the first time. It's how I saw Leviathan for the first time. I would just sit there and watch anything that they played and Leviathan, even when slightly edited for TV, cause they didn't really cut that much out on this station. Like, that fucking suicide sequence was, like, it fucked me up. And also Daniel Stern's uh, arm, where it, like, rips it off and it becomes the monster. Ugh. Yeah, it's, um, and that Kren is, like, really good in it. Yeah. Because it's, it's funny because really you got Cosmatos, who's like, oh, I like working with this guy in, in First Blood Part 2. You could see the connection. 
you know, and Krenna again, like you said, but he's also the reason that he, he's not Ian Holming it because he, he sends up all the, uh, um, escape pods because he thinks they should all die down there because he as a doctor oh no he's he's the good version the good of, version of Ian Holm he's it's the yeah. opposite or they just can't get out like yeah. we got we got a he's we got anti David yeah we should we should die here and um yeah it's it's, it's a like, good movie it's super fun um also another movie that makes me just wonder like how nice of a guy George P Cosmatos actually was because it just seems like a like he gets these very warm, weird performances from these actors in so many of these movies that... And multiple you know, times. Yeah, that's Weller, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, they keep coming back, which is usually a good yeah. sign. And I mean, how many times he worked with Stallone and everything, like, who was at that period in his life the most difficult movie star in the world to manage? And then also, more or less, letting Kurt Russell direct Tombstone. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Uh, my double feature... Uh, for the kindred, honestly, I'm going to go real basic on this, but like from beyond. Yeah. Like what a banger. That's a double feature that you could convince like a modern rep house to do. Cause you would be like, I'll do from beyond first on, you know, or maybe you would do it second. I would switch it. Maybe you do from beyond as the second movie that people have to come and see the kindred and sit through it. And then do the movie that they actually know. That would probably be the best way. But either way, they pair perfectly for all the reasons that we've already laid out. And like, both are incredibly economical. Sub 100 minutes. You could be in and out of both of them in a three hours tops. And like, every party will be stimulated. I'll put it that much. Yes. So, next question. Remake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For Kindred? What? Oh, it remakes the question. I know. Oh, yeah. So you're saying yes? Oh, who? <laughs> so next question. <laughs> next question. Remake. Yay, nay, eh. Remake of the Kindred? I would say... Or maybe let's spice this up. Uh, if you could pick any of these guys, since we've covered so many movies... Uh, in their their filmography, pretty much their entire filmography, even combined, um, would you remake? What easy peasy? Servants of Twilight. Yeah, that's the one. I and I would do it. You wouldn't even need that much money. You know what I mean? Like no. you could do it for like five mil, even today. Like five mil, you get you make it a road. You focus on the road movie aspect, but a, a killer, a, you know, kind of like midnight special kind of vibe of the cult coming after the kid. Oh, I didn't even think about Midnight Special. It is kind of close to it. Well, and I'm trying to think of some other. There are other, like you said, the Oma. There are some other very close films that have happened since Servants Cohen of Twilight. Cohen and Tate. That was before Servants of Twilight. The the Eric Red yep. Road movie where the kids kidnapped by Rory Scheider and um, uh, Animal Mother from Full Metal Jacket. Adam Baldwin. Oh yeah. Um, they're the assassins who kidnap the kid on like the the farmhouse and. It's more or less like a weird road movie. Yeah, there's a, there's another cult one. I'm, I mean, obviously believers, you know about that's a similar right. kind of vibe of the the kid also being in danger. Um, but I would just end of days. Close, yeah. Close of yeah. There's there's but, actually Satan in that one. Oh, what's that Bruce Willis movie 
where he's protecting the kid. Mercury Rising. Yeah, who accidentally decoded the thing and like Baldwin. Isn't Baldwin the bad guy? It's all it's no? all Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I just rewatched that last year because it's um it's, it's not be- good. It's, it's Becker. Yeah, Harold, Harold Becker. Becker. You're it, right. It did not. So when I first saw it, it was one of those, that was a Saturday afternoon with my dad at Lowe's in Greenwood, Indiana. We saw it. We saw all that shit. And I'm pretty sure I saw it with my dad in the theater too. And we both like it was enjoyable when I saw it. And actually, it's got a great um, John Carroll Lynch performance as the sweet dad. Yeah, he's like a really it's like the complete polar opposite of his role in Zodiac. He's like, well, it's more like Fargo. Yes, like oh yeah, very good. Just yeah. that lovable doughy kind of yeah. you know sweetness. Um, He's such an incredible actor because he can navigate the two using almost entirely his physicality. But this is not the John Carroll Lynch podcast, right? It could be. Um, <laughs> I met him. He was really nice. I was at uh, me too at, at, at South by the Ear. Yeah, he where there. he did Lucky with yes. Harry Harry Dean Stanton. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, he's he's great. Um, but yeah, I would just. What I would do is I would just lean in as much as they did into it being a just boom, 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 paperback, just, at, you know, beat, beat, beat um, of, but just a little more money, shotgun scenes, blasts, just waves of cult members <laughs> coming at them, almost make it an action film, even more than it already is. You know what's crazy now that you're saying it out loud and that you you said that Dean Koontz is still very successful? To this day, like, it's kind of crazy that he doesn't have, like, a Netflix thing, like, because, like, you could almost see, like, a string of mini movies or whatever being episodes that are just more or less, like, adaptations of his books and, like, an an- like a Dean Koontz anthology and Servants of Twilight being one of them, because that could totally rip. Like, you do something like that, maybe do the ones, like, if you pitched it to Netflix and be like, it's a six movie package or like even three, like kind of like the fear street thing that they did to where you are like servants of twilight watchers, like a remake. Yeah. Like a remake. It hide, maybe hideaway. Like it, since people actually know it, it had gold bloom in it. Like, cause they did another, the first adaptation cause Scorpion released it to whispers. I want to say, mm. but like, there's enough Dean Koontz stuff. Uh, like I would want to adapt like snake dick guy and like probably change the title to snake dick guy. Um, you know, just do with that. Like, I, I can't believe that that's actually not a thing that you didn't ever really get a Dean Koontz. Wasn't intensity. There was a, a TV movie done with that with John McGinley and, right? and Mr. Murder. Right. Yeah. And that was with uh, Stephen Baldwin. I think it was yeah yeah I one of like the, the early two thousands yeah yeah it's like the Arquettes they all run into each other yeah just say a Baldwin was in it they were all like Anthony's like kindred monsters yeah which one was in Backdraft um that's Billy Baldwin Bill yeah see there's too many man yeah, he's he looks like a monster now his face is all fucked up yeah we've mentioned like eight Baldwins in this conversation alone yeah <laughs> anyway um. But Adam Baldwin is not a Baldwin. He is not. No, he's not re- related. He is MAGA as fuck, though. So I he know. sucks. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, Animal Mother being MAGA actually kind of checks out when you think about it. Um, I mean, Servants of Twilight was going to be my my pitch for the remake as well. Because, like, Dorm that Drip Blood... You can't really do because it's like you could do just a, a non-ironic 
new slasher. But I mean, there's nothing to that movie. Like yeah. the, the the lore and the history behind it are more interesting than the movie itself to yeah. me. The power, I guess, maybe. Like it's kind of it's I like the janky storytelling again is what makes it interesting. The weird parallels I can draw in my head between like Hooper's less uh, celebrated movies like Eaten Alive and stuff like that yeah, is what it reminds me of. Yeah. Um, or Spontaneous Combustion with Brad Dourif. I don't know if you ever seen that one. Uh, just the weird like toss-offs he would do. That's what the power reminded me of. So remaking that seems kind of dumb. So, I mean, and the Kindred could be fun. I actually wrote a script. I should show you one time that the Kindred reminded me of. It's about uh, actually a kid who finds out that uh, his grandfather was more or less like a Nazi scientist who was making clones of oh, you him told me about in that. suburbia. So like, that's pretty close. Um, I actually named that. That has a pretty Dean Kuntzian title. It's called Servants of the Damned. So like, that's pretty close. Shit. Um, so maybe I would remake The Kindred. Maybe I did it without even having seen <laughs> the movie. Because uh, there's a lot. Like I was watching it. It was the one thing when I watched it by myself before we watched it together. I was noting in my head, I was like, mm, this is really close, but like, I never saw this fucking movie before. Um, so yeah, I'm going to stick with Servants uh, of Twilight with you. Cool. Final question. Yeah. Face Melter. Yay, nay. Absolutely. Um, yeah? Yeah. I, I think that... If you showed this on 35 millimeter, like that, this is how I try to define this. Imagine if Exhumed played this in the middle of like the 24 hour thon now that you've actually been to it, I think it would fucking shred like, and it would just destroy that audience. And that's kind of one of the big tests for a movie, especially like this. Yep. No. And I think the, maybe my lack of faith that it would be as good as it, as it, I, as the, as the cover promised, you know, like, Lord expectation of like, oh, if, you know, again, if this were such a great big monster for the 80s, I, I would have seen it already. Yeah. You know, so f to, for me, especially the last like 20 minutes where it just goes balls to the wall. Yeah. Is just, oh, wow. You, okay. You know, like when it, when it goes full bore. The moment I knew that it was at least in the ballpark of face melter was um, the car stunt. Yeah. Because it comes pretty early in the movie. We're only like 20 to 30 minutes in. And like, we, I think during the main portion of this podcast, we kind of undersold it. Like, it's bananas because you can't believe nobody died doing it. it yeah. It's just the cliff is so like steep and high. And like, that car fucking goes nose first into that giant puddle. And like, that was the moment where I, I think I even texted you just something along the lines of all caps. Oh my fucking God. Like just kind of, cause I was, I was excited about it and then it kept going. The other thing too, face melter wise is that it just has a lot of weird idiosyncrasies. Like the one thing we haven't talked about with their movies or frankly, we're pretty much out of time at this point, but like, they have a real weird sense of humor. Like it's very quirky. Like kind of right gallowsy a little bit. Gallowsy so. a little bit. Uh, but with like Brad with the boom box and like some of his weird line delivery and talking about shrimp and shit. And like the, some of the humor and like the power is kind of off with like the girls and when they're running around trying to solve this mystery. 
but like the the kindred it it just has this goofy air the entire time of like anything could possibly happen and you're going to be entertained regardless of like what goes down so like i agree with you like total face melter love this movie i love the fact that we even kind of did this experiment at all and just ran down these movies because it turned out even better than I thought it would because they were actually interesting. I'm not going to lie. When we pitched this at first, it was like, yeah, this is a great idea. And then I looked at the list of movies I actually watched. And I went, if these suck, this is going to be a chore. And also probably an unlistenable podcast because we're just going to be like, yeah, it was fine. I guess like it's a movie I've now seen the power. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. But no, this turned out great. Like I'm, I'm so excited because these guys have, in the span of a week, become some of my more uh, undervalued uh, filmmakers. I would say that I'd, I'd be able to spread kind of a gospel about with you. Uh, at the very least, I'm going to show the kindred to everybody. Me too, and I'm going to track down a way. Man, if we could find, if there's a print of some way out of fucking Service of Twilight out there, like. I, right. I would die. If it was Trimark, that means Lionsgate probably owns it. Um, the one thing that would give me uh, hope is because it seems like a lot of the Obrow stuff, he's listed as a producer on, so he might own some stuff on it, or at the very least might have some elements. So there might be a print or two just laying around. Oof. I want to find it. If they found the answer print for Dorm and also were able to remaster the kindred to what looks like a, an inner positive scan. It's just the colors pop so hard. Uh, I think that we could find a print of that movie and get a good yes, Blu-ray. Please. If you're listening and I know that you are vinegar syndrome, please God, this is like right up your alley. Yes. Anyway, this has been secret handshake. Martin pleasure as always. Indeed, sir. I think we only have, one more episode for the rest of the year. And then this will be the first year of secret handshake in the books. We'll see you next time. See you then.